I mentioned this frequently, well, infrequently, but some of you might think frequently. But I changed my message again this week that I had planned initially. In fact, I changed it three times. I was going to begin a series on the need for godly men as leaders in our assembly. That has come up because you know when we had the uh, focus on ministries, everybody who came up, we asked what the need was, remember that? And what was the answer? Men, men. And so I thought it might be a good time for us to discuss it. And also, uh, we are, will be replacing four deacons by the end of the year. And as you know, we normally speak about the qualifications and so on during that time. So that was my intention today. But then 13 of our men are missing today. They are in Elutra at Camp Bahamas. And uh, so I thought about that as well. But then I started to read the newspapers about people who, because of fear in their hearts concerning the economic situation, they're depressed. Several of them have committed suicide. And then I opened the papers again and I read concerning the situation by Dr. Allen. And again, his focus on men. And um, so I decided maybe I should speak along those lines, how we should, as believers, face tough times. So I started to work on a passage, but as I went through the passage, God, and I hope it was God, you'll be the one to determine that, led me to another passage of Scripture. And that's the passage that I will... Uh, talk to you about this morning. And I say that because there's a real struggle this week for me. I don't want sympathy now. I just want money. Uh, <laughs> but as this thing started to come on me, it was very difficult to really work. Really it was. Especially yesterday and last night. It was a difficult time. But God used this text of Scripture to bless my own soul. And I just thank God that I was sensitive to his leading for that because I needed it perhaps more than anyone else. I've entitled my message, as you see, I hope, Tough Times, Rejoice. Now that's a message that those who don't know Christ or have no idea what the Bible teaches is ridiculous. They look at it as being crazy. Why should I rejoice when things get tough? Well, I believe that when things get tough, that's the time for believers to be able to really stand out from the rest of the crowd. Because if as believers we behave and we confront tough times the same way the unbeliever does or the person who does not trust Jesus Christ, then there's something wrong with our Christianity. And so I want us to look at this passage today as a means of helping and encouraging us to be ready to minister to others when things get tough. The passage is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. I invite you to get your Bibles. We'll see it on the screen as well. But I want you to follow through in your Bibles. I'll read 
First Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That's the tough times. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. <clears throat> Isn't that a magnificent passage? Fantastic. We're going to begin by looking at verses 3 and 5, where Paul tells us that we should praise God for our inheritance. Now, these fantastic verses tell us that we should praise God for the eternal salvation, the secure salvation that he has given us through faith in Jesus Christ. The apostle says that we should praise God for several reasons. The first thing he says that we should praise God for is that he is great in mercy. Do you agree with that? Sure. God is great in mercy. Which of us would deny this truth? We are all saved because God is great in handling out mercy. In handing out mercy. If that were not true, none of us would be here. When you say we are saved by grace through faith, that is true. Thank God for that. But you see, grace is God giving us what we cannot earn. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. Did you get that? Grace is God giving us what we cannot earn. Mercy is God not giving us what we deserve. And all of us deserve to be separated from God. All of us. But through the death of his son on the cross, reconciliation is made possible. And he even gives us the faith, the place in his son, Jesus Christ, so that we could be reconciled to God. God is great in mercy. My friends, have you experienced the mercy of God in your life? Have you placed faith in Jesus Christ? I get up, I read the papers, I see on news people who have been jailed for drugs. And I say, but for the grace and mercy of God, there goes Alan Lee. Gambling is a big thing today. People are addicted to gambling. Whenever I read or hear about that, I say, 
but for the grace and mercy of God. There goes Alan Lee. God is grace and mercy. Thank him for it every day of your life. But secondly, Peter also tells us that we should thank God because he caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope. That's what it's called. Later on in verse 23 of this chapter, Paul says it's a living hope because it is ground in the, grounded in the living word of God. Our hope is living because it is grounding in the word of God and the word of God is quick. It's alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. Our hope is living because it is based on the living word of God. It was made possible by the living Son of God who arose from the dead. Our Savior is not a dead Savior. Our Savior is not on the cross. If he was still on the cross, he would not be our Savior. He's alive. And our hope is in a living Christ, not in a dead or even a dying Christ. Our hope is a living hope. Warren Risby, a writer I love to read, says this about this section, and I quote, A living hope is one that has life in it and therefore can give life to us. Because it has life, it grows and becomes greater and more beautiful as time goes on. I love that. More beautiful as time goes on. Time destroys most hopes. They fade and then they die. But the passing of time only makes a Christian's hope that much more glorious. End of hope. End of quote, not end of hope. That's beautiful. Our hope is a living hope. That's why we could rejoice no matter how tough things get. We could rejoice. Why? Because our hope is a living hope. It's based on the living word. It's based on a living Jesus Christ. We should thank God for the living hope. Amen? Amen. But thirdly, Peter says, we should also thank God because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. He raised him from the dead. Our hope is alive and living because it is grounded and founded upon a living Savior, not a dead one. He is alive in us now. Do you believe that? He is alive in us no matter how tough things get. He is still alive and he is in us. Now as we shall see as we go on here, he is our living hope of glory. The hope and the glory goes together. It's a glory we share now, and it's a glory we look forward to sharing even in a greater and a more glorious way in the future. He has given us, given us a taste of the glory to come by having the living Christ dwell within us. Do you get that? If you are a believer in Christ, he lives within you. Did you get that? He lives within you. He's a living Savior. Why should we fear when we have the living Christ living within us? He has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of love 
And we're going to see that as we go on. But not only does he, Peter says we should thank him for his great mercy. And because he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. And because he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. But we should thank him also because he has promised us an eternal, secure inheritance. An eternal, secure inheritance. You know what is causing many people's hearts to fail them today? It's the money they have in their investments. They don't know if they can have it tomorrow. In fact, one of my relatives came to me yesterday and says, Alan, I've just lost all of my pension. And people are fearing that. They don't know whether to take the money out and put it under the rocks like we do here on the islands. <laughs> I'm serious about this. People are really thinking about taking their money out of these banks and investment places because they could lose them. Now, when you take out the cash, you've got to hide it someplace. So I'm going in a new business now, the Rock Bank of the Bahamas. <laughs> But it's their investments and their inheritance now. Some people have written their wills for their children and their wives and so on. All based on what they have put away. It could be gone tomorrow. Peter says for the believer in Jesus Christ, God has promised us an eternal, secure inheritance. Nothing can touch it. No matter how bad things get, it cannot touch the bank of heaven. Remember now, our living hope is our eternal, secure inheritance. Peter says it's imperishable, which means that nothing can ruin it. It can't die. It can't rust away. He says it's undefiled, which means it cannot be stained or cheapened in any way. You're not going to lose any of your interest in this inheritance. No matter what happened to the stock market, you're not going to lose anything at all. It will not fade away, which means it will never grow old because it is eternal. It cannot wear out this inheritance of ours, nor can it disappoint us in any way. My relative is disappointed. It's gone. But not this inheritance that God has promised us. We share in the inheritance of Jesus Christ. What belongs to him belongs to the believer in Christ. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8.16. The Spirit himself. This is the Holy Spirit of the triune God. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children is also, is of God, no, notice now, and fellow is with Christ. You get that? 
Wood belongs to God, belongs to us. Wood belongs to Christ, belongs to us. You said, man, you're talking foolishness. No, that's what Paul says. That's what the word of God says. We share in the inheritance of the triune God. But now notice what he says. If children is also is of God and fellow is with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. I want you to see how he's connected our inheritance to suffering. Now, we don't like that one. We like, we like to hear about this secure inheritance in the bank of heaven. But you know something? It's tied to suffering. For I considered that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that has to be revealed in us. The Apostle Peter contrasts the sufferings we might have to undergo, the tough times we might have to undergo here on earth, with the glories that await us when we inherit what belongs to us in God and in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is, there ain't no comparison. But what he's going to teach us, it's necessary to go through tough times. They go together. And you see, we don't like that part of it, do we? I didn't hear anybody say amen on that one for the sufferings. I want you to notice, though, how the word of God presents sufferings and future glory together, how they are contrasted. Peter will explain why this is so as we go along. But right now I want to say to you that we can say with David in Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. Did you get that? Not money, not wealth, not possessions, but the Lord is the portion of my inheritance. It's a person, not someone else, not anything else that is our inheritance secured in glory. It's a person. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You support my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Indeed, my heritage is beautiful to me. Oh, that's beautiful. The psalmist says, because my heritage is God, my inheritance is beautiful to me. Is your inheritance beautiful to you? Do you thank God for it every day? The fact that God himself is our inheritance? And that's true no matter how tough things get. Remember what the Lord said to Aaron in Numbers 18 verse 20. He says, you shall have no inheritance in their land. He's talking about the land of the Philistines. You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. Now notice what he says. This is God talking to Aaron about the promised land. You know, sons of Aaron, the priests, they had no portion of that land. But now listen to what he says is their inheritance. I am your portion. I am your inheritance among the sons of Israel. See, 
the tribe of, or the sons of Aaron could feel bad. They could feel left out. They ain't got no inheritance of land in the promised land. But God said, don't worry about that, man. I got a bad inheritance for you. You know what your inheritance is? Me. I am your inheritance. Oh, beloved, get a hold of that. Even if you lose it all, you've lost nothing compared to who you have in the triune God, who is your inheritance. Set your minds then on things of heaven, not things on earth. So what a wonderful, beautiful thought this is. Our inheritance is no one or nothing on this earth, but it is God himself. Is this not how God ends his divine revelation to us in the book of Revelation? In other words, at the very end of God's revelation to us, he reminds us of who our true inheritance is. Listen to what he says. Revelation 21, verse 3. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Did you get that? God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away, and God lives in the midst of his people. That's our inheritance. God with us forevermore. No matter how tough things get, that is still true. That, beloved, is the inheritance that those who have been caused to be born again unto a living hope has reserved in heaven for them. I trust that you have placed your faith in Christ. And that's your inheritance. If you haven't, your inheritance, inheritance is quite different. And my heart goes out to anyone here without Christ today that rather than looking forward to an inheritance of wrath away from God in the lake of fire forever, you look forward to inheritance with him forever. Please, place your faith in Christ. But how different from the temporal inheritance or wealth or possessions is inheritance we have in the triune God. Peter says this. He says, it is reserved in heaven for you. Have you ever had the experience where you made a reservation to a hotel someplace? Especially around Christmas time or New Year's, whatever. And then you go to the hotel, or even for a reservation into a restaurant on Mother's Day, Father's Day, well, not Father's Day too much, Mother's Day. <laughs> and you go to the restaurant and you say, sorry, I can't find your reservation, or too many people came, or you came too late. Have you had that experience? I have. But you know, that's not going to happen when we get the glory to get our inheritance. It is reserved by God himself, and no one, no one can change that reservation. It is reserved in heaven for you. Did you get that? Now, this is only for those who know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's all. 
It's reserved, kept. God himself is keeping that reservation secure for us. But then Peter goes on to say something else. He says we should also praise God because he is keeping us so that we can be sure that we'll enjoy the inheritance that he is keeping. We have double security. He's keeping our inheritance and he's keeping us safe so we can get that insurance that he is keeping safe. Notice, verse 5 says, we are protected by the power of God, not the government. Federal government in the United States, not government. We're not protected by any insurance from any source. We are protected by the power of God through faith. For salvation ready to be revealed. I love that. Ready to be revealed. It's almost as though he's standing at the gate saying, come on, come, come, get it. Ready to be revealed in the last time. Now listen carefully to this, folks. Remember, I'm trying with God's help to prepare you for tough times. So that you could be in a position to help those who do not have Christ. And you can only do so if you really know what you have when you have Christ. Listen to this now. I'm making it into heaven to receive our glorious inheritance does not depend upon us. It depends upon God. In fact, Peter says it depends upon the powerful God, the, omnip the omnipotent God. He's keeping it with his mighty power. He's keeping our inheritance safe and he's keeping us safe. Do you want more security than that? No matter how bad the financial times might get, we don't have to worry. Because God is keeping us as well as our inheritance secure. Look at the word in your Bible. You see, it says protected. You are kept or protected. Some versions put a difference. That word, they protected, is a military term. In other words, it comes out of the army setting. It has the idea of warriors guarding a fortress with all of their gear on. It has the idea of a soldier guarding a prisoner with all of his weapons on. That's the word that is used here when he says that we are kept by the power of God. It's a picture of God. Standing God not only over our inheritance but over us. Fully arrayed in all of his armor. To take on anyone who tries to take us from him or to take our inheritance away from us. God is guarding us. He is securing us. He is protecting us. And he is a powerful God. What a beautiful picture this is. Man, if I wasn't sick today, I could really shout. <laughs> Satan and his demons don't stand a chance. 
Now, they come coming at you, mind you. You know, they talk about these little fiery darts. You see, he stands off. You might not know Satan. You might think it's a friend or your banker or the employer who fire you. Or you might look at them as, mm, 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 mm. that's not the enemy. It's the devil hiding behind the bushes and he's shooting those arrows at you. That's who's doing it. But you know what Jesus says? He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. We misinterpret that passage sometimes. We look at that passage as though the church is going into enemy territory and trying to overcome it. That's not the picture. The picture is just the reverse. The demonic forces are coming at the church, trying to attack the church. But God says, listen, I don't care what you throw at me. You will not prevail. One of the beautiful truths of this is that we are guarded for glory. In other words, God has set ahead for us in his blessed hope, glory. He's going to call it the hope of glory. It's a glorious hope. The only thing that, is looking, that the Christian can look for is glory, glory, glory. And God himself is keeping us, guarding us, securing us for glory. Now, if that don't make you shout amen, I don't know what can. Even Diane can say amen. Diane, can you say amen? Yeah, she can say amen. We are guarded for glory. But now Peter continues to explain this fantastic, glorious inheritance that awaits us in glory. Now, you have to read verses 6 and 9 together because it's one paragraph. And sometimes we miss the truth, the impact of the word when we take just little segments out or little phrases. So I want to read the whole passage, 6 to 9, and then we'll comment on it. In this, you greatly rejoice. My pipes are getting a little hot. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Bahamians are distressed today, depressed. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. What a glorious passage of scripture this is. Now, so having described for us then the security of the eternal salvation reserved for us in heaven and our own protection by the power of God to guarantee us that we shall in fact enter in and enjoy this glory inheritance in the future, 
Peter now focuses on how we are to joyfully live out this blessed hope even when things get tough. Even when we face problems day to day, Peter says, this is how we are to live because of the glorious inheritance that awaits us. Look at the opening words of verse 6. It says, in this you greatly rejoice. In what? In what we've just read in verses four, five, or 3, 4, and 5. In verse 3. God caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. We rejoice in that. Verse 4. God is keeping an inheritance for us in heaven that cannot perish or soil or fade away. We should rejoice in that. Verse 5. God is keeping us for that inheritance by the might of his own power. We should rejoice in that. In fact, Peter says we should greatly rejoice in that. Not just rejoice. But greatly rejoice. John Piper, another favorite writer of mine, makes a wonderful comment on this verse in his study of this epistle. This is what he says. Just one phrase. Our hope is our joy. I love that. Our hope is our joy. Our blessed hope should be the source of our joy in Christ. Peter says it is this joy that should characterize us as believers right now, even while we are going through tough times. Notice what he says. Even though for a little while, if necessary, you may be distressed by various trials. Paul's subject here is trials. My power phrase of trials is things tough. When things, it could be health, could be finances, it could be at the workplace with your employer, could be family problems, whatever it is. These are the trials he's talking about. These are the tough times he's talking about. He tells us several things, though, about tough times. First, he says, trials are only for a little while. Look at your scriptures. That's all it says, for a little while. So no matter what the trial may be, how big, how small it may be, we can be sure that this, too, will pass away. It's not here forever. No matter how big, no matter how small it is, it's only for a short while. Now, as you shall see, they, these trials and difficulties, now listen carefully to this, only, long as, only last as long as God is doing his work in and through us by those trials. In other words, listen carefully, Tough times are controlled by God. Not you, not the bank, not your employer, not circumstances. Tough times are controlled by God. 
They're not controlled by Satan. They're not controlled by man. They're controlled by God. You say, how do I get that? Well, look, let's look at the next thing. Not only is it true that trials only last for a little while, trials are necessary. Look at the text. If necessary. This now introduces us to the concept of the sovereignty of God. God controls everything in our life, even tough times, even trials. It is God who determines the necessities of our life, the necessities of specific distresses caused by the trials he either allows or directly brings into our life. In other words, all of the tough times we face are a part of the sovereign plan of God for our lives. They're not controlled by you or me or the bank or economic times. They're controlled by God. And they last only as long as it takes for God to do what he wants us to do, what he wants to do to make us to be more like himself. Peter is saying that God causes us to be born again to the living hope through the power of the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And that life involves trials. God is the one who either brings things directly or indirectly. And I have so many biblical examples of that. Paul for once. Satan came at Paul. God used the same thing Satan was trying to destroy Paul to cause him to glorify God. And Paul prayed again and again, take it away. God says, no, I got a better plan for you. You could glorify me better by going through this time of problems than me taking it away from you. Paul learned that and he thanked God for that. But Peter is teaching us that God is as much involved with our everyday lives as he is in causing us to experience his regeneration power in the first place. God does not only cause us to be born again, but he also causes us to go through tough times. And the wonderful truth here is that he has designed and planned this great salvation in such a way that the stresses and problems caused by trials are necessary for us to experience as we move toward the final realization of this goal. In other words, before we can get the crown, we've got to go way of the cross. That's the way it's set up. If you don't like it, you don't like the very core of what the Christian life is all about. Now, these distresses are real mine. These are not figments of the imagination. These trials and distresses and problems are real. There's pain. There's hurt involved. But your inheritance doesn't change. Neither should your joy. You understand what I'm saying? If it's one time, or it's, if there are times when the Christian should really show his Christianity, is when things get tough. But if we are going to fold up and holler and shout and cry the same way the person who does not have Christ respond to trials, then what good is our Christianity? 
Peter says the knowledge of this necessity for these things should cause us not only to rejoice, but to do so quickly. I just lost all. What that word is? I forgot the word. My inheritance on earth. Peter says, rejoice greatly. Now, because you lost it? No. Because you have one that is greater that will never fade away. That's what he's talking about. Rejoice. Understand where you're going. He begins, Peter begins this chapter by saying, we're aliens. Not from outer space. This is not our home. Everything you build here, invest in here, that has to do with the fit, that can be left right here. All our wealth, all our possessions, if we only use it on ourselves, then it's only earthly. You can leave it right here. Now you can send some of that stuff or all of it ahead, but you can't take it with you. You don't need pindas. Brokers to come in the big trucks to take what you have to the grave. You remember what Job said? Naked, I came into this world, and naked as a jaybird, I'm going out of this world. <laughs> now, the phrase it says, you notice what it says, if need be? This indicates that there are special times. When God knows that we need to go through trials. Don't miss that. If need be, God only allows or brings these things into our lives if need be. And God is wise. God, why you do this? Because it's needed right now for me to mold you into my image. That's why. No matter what it may be, if need be, who senses this need? God, not you, not me, God, if need be. Sometimes we need discipline because of disobedience. That's true with the Corinthians when they came around the Lord's Supper. They were disciplined. Sometimes trials prepare us for spiritual growth. Growth. Or even to prevent us from sinning. That's why Paul's trials came. To prevent him from sinning. You know, he says, if I had been able to see, to say what I saw when I went into the third heavens, man, I could be puffed up by pride. So God sent the discipline in his life to prevent him from being proud. And sometimes trial comes our way to prevent us from sinning. As well as to discipline us because we have sinned. We do not always know the need being met, but we can trust God to know to do what is best for us. All, now listen carefully to this. And you see, this is where we have to come to understand that God's thoughts are not our thoughts, nor ours his. As far as the heavens are above the earth, so are God's thoughts above ours. But listen to this carefully. All trials, all Tough times are necessary from God's perspective. Did you get that? All of them. 
This is another reason for us to be joyful believers as a way of expressing our hope in Christ. The knowledge that God has a purpose and design for our trials, our distresses and our difficulties, while we are awaiting the joy of experiencing our eternal inheritance. God says, hey, you can taste that right now, even in the midst of trials. Therefore, greatly rejoice. Our hope, as John Piper says, is our joy. Our trials and problems of life are designed to prepare us to enter into our eternal, heaven and, uh, our eternal inheritance with joyful anticipation. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. But there's something else about trials. They're stressful. They bring stress. I had a little bit of stress these last couple of days, knowing whether I should call somebody to preach or not. I had stress. Trials, are, they hurt. They cause pain and sorrow sometimes. But God says they're necessary for me to either to teach you something, to discipline you, or to mature you, to make you to be more into the image of Christ. Trials are stressful, but something else this passage. It tells us that trials are varied. Well, the King James, I believe, says they are manifold. Now, people mean that means that there are plenty of them. No, that's not really the meaning of the word. It means many-colored or multifaceted. In other words, trials are like diamonds in the rough. You know when you take a diamond and make it look good, it turn it in all kinds of lights, you've got to cut it sometimes and so on to see the beauty? That's what he's talking about here. He uses, in a moment, he uses the illustration of a goldsmith. Purifying gold. But he says they're multifaceted. They are many colored. They're like diamonds in the rough. They come in all sizes and shapes and from all kinds of people. They come from our brothers and our sisters in Christ sometimes. These tresses and trials, they come from all around. But God says, listen. If you cut it right, you hold it in the right light, you'll see the beauty of God himself shining from it. So after stating that believers are to greatly rejoice while undergoing the necessary trials that all believers face on their journey to possess their eternal inheritance, Peter next states the reason for such exuberant joy in the midst of trials. No matter what their source no matter how they come. Listen to what he says in verse 7. Look in your text. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Beloved, look at that text very good. This is God speaking to you. I, I said, look at the text, not at your watch. Because <laughs> I'm going to go through this text. I'm going to finish it. I struggled with this. And I'm not going to stop it short. But look at the text. He is saying that the pain, the distresses and problems we encounter in the fire that God uses to purify our imperishable faith. 
so that when the entire process is completed, our joyful reception of trials now will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ then. He says, when we are able to glory in the midst of trials and to see the glory that we have in Christ awaiting for us, when we do see him, it's all going to result in praise and glory and honor at the appearance of Jesus Christ. Man, this is magnificent. This is a magnificent story. What a fantastic revelation this is. Pains, trials, distresses, they are all God's way for the purifying of our faith, removing all of the impurities and shortcomings that prevent us from experiencing the fullness of the glorious, precious salvation we have in Jesus Christ. These trials bring the spiritual impurities of lack of trust materialism, greed, and all of these fleshy things to the surface so that God can deal with them through confession and cleansing by the blood of Jesus Christ. So to allow us as repentant sinners to move forward in the glorious anticipation of seeing Jesus Christ in all of his glory, but having some of that glory fall upon us as well. And that's glorious, isn't it? These trials also used by the Holy Spirit that he uses to validate the authenticity of our faith. This is why I believe, really, the more severe trials you see someone go through and they are responding to it in a way that glorifies Christ, I know that God has his hand upon that person for a special reason. So I don't feel sorry for him. Well, you say, you hard-hearted, eh? going through all that pain, all that suffering. No, I have a heart for them, but I look behind that. And I see that God has a greater purpose for that. And he is laying his hand on that person because he knows he can trust him. Remember Job? Job? He says, what did he say? He says something that even though he slay me, Yet will I trust him. And then he says, I will come out like pure gold. See, that's it. Some people say that the goldsmith doesn't take that gold out of that fire till he could see his face in it. Carry that over to us. Trials, disappointments, going through the fire of trials. God is looking in the midst of that fire, to see if he could see his face in you in the midst of those trials. Now, how are we to live then? Let me wrap this up. Peter gives us several things we should do while we're facing trials, if we're going to face them like Christians who have this glorious inheritance and so that we will be in a position to minister to those who go through times of stress and trials, whose hearts are failing them because of fear and what is coming upon the face of the earth. Peter's telling us what we can do to be able to minister to people like that. First of all, 
He tells us, and we're down to verses 8 and 9 now. He tells us we should love Christ intimately. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. What is he saying? In the midst of trials, love Christ intimately. In other words, if there is a time that we should develop our intimacy with Jesus Christ, it's when things get tough. Don't run away from him. Don't hide from him. Draw near to him. Love him intimately. This means that we are to use times of stress in our lives to develop an even more intimate relationship with our Savior. Don't run away from him. Why are you causing this to happen to me? Mm-mm. Draw near. But secondly, we must trust Christ completely. Though he's not present, though we don't see him. Peter says, and though you do not see him now, but believe in him. That means trust him. When? When things tough. Trust him completely. We are to read and study the word of God. This is what builds faith. We don't throw the Bible away and say, I've wasted my time because this thing wouldn't happen to me. No, we read and study it so we can, come more, we can see Jesus Christ, learn more of him, and as a result be more like him. We need to develop an intimate relationship with Christ through scripture. When we face tough times. Not only are we to love Christ intimately, or we are to trust Christ completely, we are to rejoice in Christ exuberantly, extravagantly, and gloriously in the midst of trials. Notice Peter says, You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. When? When things tough. That's when. You Greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. This will tell everyone that we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, the living Savior. And our hope is a living one. But not only that. Not only are we to love Christ intimately, trust Him completely, and rejoice in Him exuberantly. But we are to receive from Christ right now. What? foretaste of the glorious salvation that we are destined to receive. Notice what Peter says. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith right now the salvation of your souls. Peter is saying that we can experience the glory of our inheritance that awaits us right now. He's given us a deposit. If we love Christ intimately, trust Him completely, rejoice in Him exuberantly, then we can receive from him right now that glory that is awaiting us as well. Charles Spurgeon used to say this, quote, Little faith will take your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. You see, my friends, it's not enough that we long for heaven during times of suffering. Anybody can do that. Oh, I want to see Jesus come so I can get out of all of this mess. Anybody can do that. But what Peter is urging his readers to do is to exercise love, faith, and rejoicing right now so that they might experience some of the glory of heaven in the midst of suffering right now. Bring heaven down to us in the midst of problems, in the midst of trials, in the midst of difficulties. How? By loving Christ intimately, believing, trusting in Him completely. 
rejoicing in him exuberantly because of the hope that is laid up for us in glory. And so I say to you again, this is a glorious passage for us today. The Apostle Peter highlights the ultimate triad of the Christian life in this passage is faith, hope, and love. And he says that they are all intertwined in our salvation from beginning to end. They are an integral and inherent, they are integral and inherent in both the process and the final product of God's master plan for us. And that has to do with his glory, his praise, his honor, as well as our own glorification. And so I leave you with these words of the apostle in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, especially now, as things crumble around us. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, is, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's our hope. And so dear members of the incredible body of Christ here at Calvary Bible Church, with this kind of an attitude and faith in Christ, you will be able to minister to those who do not have this blessed hope when things get tough. And they are getting tough. May you be a minister and not a victim of tough times by placing your eyes on Jesus Christ. Bow with me in the closing prayer, please. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power, the fact that it is alive. My prayer today for all of us as believers is that we might truly understand what we have when we have Christ. Help us to be so insulated from the cares of this world that when things get really tough for those around us, we will be there to minister and to lead these individuals to faith in Jesus Christ. Help us to glory, we pray, in Christ Jesus, in the midst of tough times. And all of God's people said, Amen.